Elias Abulazam was born on August 28, 1976, in central Israel. You know, back in Michigan, if I met someone with a name spelled like his, I'd call him Elias. But Abulazam was an Israeli Arab, and it is my understanding that Elias is the proper pronunciation of his name. He grew up comfortably middle class with his Christian Arab family in Israel but the people of his hometown did not have good things to say about him. They described him as a young man who used drugs, got into fights, and had unsteady employment. He was unreliable. In 1995, seeking a fresh start with relatives, Elias moved to the United States. According to Israeli media after his arrest, Elias was 20 years old when he decided to leave Israel due to arrests for drugs and violence. He would receive a green card, but he never became a U.S. citizen. When he arrived in the U.S., Elias lived in Virginia, where he worked as a mental health technician at Piedmont Behavioral Health Center in Leesburg. While employed at Piedmont, he worked with troubled children, and his co-workers described him as a gentle giant, a man who displayed remarkable patience and restraint when dealing with mentally unstable and violent teenagers. They would marvel at how he diffused situations where it would be easier for the six-foot, five-inch, 280-pound man to physically subdue the child. In 1997, Elias married Don Costello. They would separate in 2000 and be officially divorced in 2002. Not much is known about their relationship. On July 30, 2004, Elias married again this time to a woman named Jessica Hearth. The couple met in Texas while Elias was there visiting family. After he was arrested for his many crimes, his former in-laws said they were shocked by news of the arrest. They always viewed him as a very nice man. And despite how he seemed to them, Elias and Jessica divorced in 2007 due to him being verbally and physically abusive toward his wife. Like much of his life before his crimes, not much is known about Elias' time after his divorce and what he did before moving to Michigan. Just the occasional report from a former co-worker and what was documented in divorce proceedings. While Elias was in the United States for more than a decade before his murderous spree, it was when he settled in Flint, again staying with family, that he would reveal himself to be a terribly violent man. On May 22, 2010, Elias moved to a home in Flint that was owned by his uncle. His uncle not only found him a place to live, but helped him secure a job at a nearby convenience store. And at the end of May in Michigan, people are thinking summer. They're thinking sunshine and swimsuits and barbecues. But the people that live in and around Flint, Michigan, they're not getting the summer they'd hoped for. So come with me to the small hours of May 24th, 2010, when a man headed home on foot is attacked by a knife-wielding monster. Just two days after Elias settled in Michigan, Flint police are called at 6 a.m. There were reports of an injured man in a yard near Leith and Dexter Streets. Police responded to the residential area on the northeast end of town. The man, later identified as 31-year-old David Motley, He'd been stabbed, and despite first responders' attempts to revive him, 
He was pronounced dead at the scene. Motley, an African-American, was transported to the county coroner's office. Another sad statistic for Flint, another murder. And there were no witnesses to his murder, so it was written off as another random act of violence in a city that was already struggling. You see, Motley would be one of 53 people killed in Flint that year. In 2010, Flint had a population of about 110,000 people and a police force of only 67. Law enforcement in Flint struggled to keep up on their caseload, and it could be a challenge to provide the most basic services to citizens, let alone the manpower and hours needed for the number of murders that the city faced that year. To put things in perspective, the city of Flint had less than 70 police officers, while the city of Ann Arbor, Michigan, which has a similar population, employs 126 sworn officers. It wouldn't take too long before police realized there was nothing random about the attack on Motley, that his murder was the start of a spree that would leave an additional four men dead and 13 more injured. Almost a month later, on June 21st, 59-year-old Emmanuel Abdul Mohammed was found stabbed to death around 2 a.m. near Avenue B and Wood Street in Flint. This location is about three miles from where Motley was killed, and it's on the other side of the river, a different part of town. But his murder also took place in the middle of a residential part of Flint. Muhammad was a native of Union Springs, Alabama, but later moved to Flint with his family. He graduated from Flint Northern High School in 1969, where he was a football player. And no one saw the attack on Muhammad, and his case went cold until it would be tied with later attacks. On June 26th, 42-year-old Bill Fisher was attacked around 5.50 a.m. on Pearson Road. This would be the first victim that Elias left alive, and it gave police their first leads in the case. Bill will later testify against Abulazam and identify him as the man who stabbed him. Fisher was waiting for the bus when Elias asked for help checking the engine on his Chevy Blazer. Bill testified, quote, I tell him, pull the latch, and he came so fast I had a dagger in my stomach. After being stabbed, Fisher scrambled to a nearby apartment building and pushed buttons, hoping that someone would respond and call 911. Meanwhile, Abulazam fled the scene. Pearson Road, where this attack took place, it's a busy thoroughfare through Flint. It connects the city to Interstate 75, making this attack a departure from previous ones because it didn't happen in a quiet neighborhood. On July 12th, 29-year-old Antoine Jackson was stabbed around 1.30 a.m. near Saginaw Street and Maple Avenue in Burton. Burton is a suburb of Flint. Witnesses found Antoine on the grass and called for help. Police and paramedics were dispatched, and Antoine was taken to the hospital with multiple stab wounds. Luckily, he survived the attack. And like the attack on Fisher... The intersection of Saginaw Street and Maple Avenue, it's a commercial area, not residential. One week later, July 19th, just after midnight, 49-year-old Richard Booker is walking along North Saginaw in Genesee Township. Genesee Township is also a Flint suburb. 
and as he's walking, a man asks Booker for help opening the hood of his vehicle. As Booker approached the man to assist, he was stabbed five times. The 49-year-old survived the attack, but spent weeks in the hospital recovering from his injuries. Booker required 68 staples across his back and stomach to close the wounds. He also had slash marks across both arms. When interviewed after the attack, Richard said the slash wounds came when he tried to keep his attacker from cutting his face. He added, quote, I have never hurt so much in my life. I've never come so close to death. The attack on Booker is notable as he will be the only one of Elias's victims who was white. Four days after the attack on Booker, an unidentified 21-year-old man was stabbed around 5.45 a.m. on University Avenue near King. There is no additional information about this incident. On July 26th, 43-year-old Darwin Marshall was found stabbed to death around 1.25 a.m. on Garland Street near West 5th Avenue in Flint. This brings us back to a commercial area. The attack took place yards from a car wash, funeral home, a florist, and other businesses. Marshall was a 1985 graduate of Flint Northern High School, and after graduation, he served four years in the U.S. Army. When he left the Army, he returned to Flint, where he worked odd jobs. His mother told the media that her son loved to play dominoes and cards. Velma Marshall also said her son had the voice of an angel. Darwin Marshall was survived by his mother and two adult children. On July 27th, Antoine Marshall, no relation to Darwin, was 26 years old, and he was attacked around 3 a.m. near Pearson and Fleming in Flint. Antoine was stabbed six times in the stomach and chest, but he survived the attack. Antoine later testified that he was approached by Elias, who asked him for help opening the hood of his Chevy Blazer. As Antoine walked around the vehicle, he began to have an uneasy feeling. Quote, I started to ease away. Something in my mind, it told me to ease away. And when I tried to ease away, that's when he stabbed me. The next victim, 20-year-old Devon Rawls, was stabbed on July 29th around 3.30 a.m. at Leith and Cook Streets. Elias asked Devon for directions toward a liquor store. He then jumped out of his vehicle and lunged for him. Devon tried to run but tripped and was jumped by Elias. After stabbing him, Elias fled and Devon was able to get help. The attack took place about a mile from the first attack, which occurred on May 24th. Later that same day, perhaps upset with the way the attack on Devon went, Elias stabbed a 59-year-old man around 6 a.m. near Saginaw and 12th Street. Not much is known about this incident other than that the victim survived. These attacks, once weeks apart, were coming more and more frequently. If we were watching a crime drama on television, someone would make a comment that the killer is escalating. On July 30th, 60-year-old Frank Kelly Brew was stabbed to death around 3.30 a.m. near the hometown inn on Miller Road in Flint Township. A passerby called police after seeing Frank's body lying in front of the restaurant, which is next door to the inn. The manager of the inn would later say that Frank was a good guy. He liked to joke and drink coffee with a small group of acquaintances at the motel. 
Frank had been living at the hometown inn since the previous September, and he was a retired General Motors employee. Slightly off topic, if you look up the hometown inn on TripAdvisor, the reviews are not kind. It does not sound like a place you would want to plan a trip around. Frank's murder was being investigated by Flint Township Police Detective Randy Kimes. Kimes initially wrote this off as another senseless act of random violence, but he worked the case. Flint Township Police were better staffed and better funded than law enforcement in the city of Flint. Just two hours after Kelly Brew was attacked, and before the sun rose over the city, a 28-year-old man was stabbed on South Saginaw Street near West 2nd. This victim also survived the attack. And the next day, August 1st, 18-year-old Etwan Wilson was walking alone when he was attacked about 2.30 a.m. near Pearson and Basil and Flint. Etwan stated that a large man in a green over-gold SUV was pulled over on the side of the road. The man motioned for Etwan to come over to the vehicle and then asked for directions. When Etwan obliged, the man blitzed him and stabbed him in the stomach. Etwan managed to get away and was taken to the hospital. When Etwan was interviewed a year after the attack, he said that he still endured physical pain as well as continued mental distress from his encounter with a killer. On August 2nd, 49-year-old Arnold Miner was found dead around 2.30 a.m. on South Saginaw Street near Barton in Flint. Miner was walking home from his mother's house and was killed less than a mile from home. His sister had offered him a ride, but he declined. While what exactly Elias did to win Arnold's trust is unknown, his sister will tell the media that her brother would have helped anyone and that would have made him an easy target for Elias' method of disarming his victims. This attack, the murder of Arnold Miner, occurred on the south side of the city, miles from the initial attack in May. Meanwhile, Detective Kimes of the Flint Township Police is investigating Frank Kelly Brew's murder. And when he heard about the death of Arnold Miner, he went to check out the crime scene. Kimes immediately saw similarities between the two cases. Quote, it appeared that someone was walking down the roadway, had been assaulted, and tried to run away. The fact that neither victim had been robbed of their wallets, right away that raises your suspicions. The time of day, early in the morning and late at night, was the same. When he dug a little deeper, connecting with detectives in Flint and learning about other similar crimes, Kimes was shocked to realize this was the fourth murder of its kind since May 24th. That's four fatal stabbings in less than 10 weeks. On August 4th, 2010, law enforcement in Genesee County announced what many citizens may have suspected. The stabbings were the work of one man. There were too many similarities between the attacks to attribute them to different people. The citizens of Flint and surrounding communities are now on high alert. They couldn't have known at the time that they were going to be given a temporary reprieve while Elias was visiting relatives in Virginia. The man responsible for attacking and murdering black men in the Flint area, he hasn't stopped. He's on vacation. On August 3rd, 15-year-old Anthony Cage was taking a nighttime jog in Leesburg, Virginia, when he was attacked and stabbed in the back. Anthony required surgery, but he would survive the attack. Anthony later testified that he jogged at night to avoid the heat. 
As he was running, an SUV passed him, stopped, and the driver got out. Quote, So I just pass him up, look at him out of the corner of my eye. He was wearing a baseball cap. And just seconds after that, I feel a jab. And I see him running back. So I was like, was he trying to mug me or something? But when I touched my back where he hit me, I felt a huge wet spot. I kind of went into panic mode. Started running to the intersection, trying to flag down people, but nobody stopped. Anthony then went to a Sunoco station where the attendant called 911. Cage was lucky. One of the customers at the service station was an army medic, and they provided medical attention until the ambulance arrived. On August 5th, Elias is stopped by police in Arlington, Virginia. He'd run a stop sign. When police conduct a background check, they see that Elias is wanted on a misdemeanor assault charge stemming from an incident with his former brother-in-law. While he was being booked and placed in a holding cell, police impounded his car. When they conducted a routine search of his vehicle, they found a knife in the driver's side door, as well as a hammer. The weapons and car were returned to Elias after he was released. This is absolutely infuriating, but they have to return his property. They don't know that the two weapons, the hammer and the knife, will later be linked to the attacks Elias would commit in Virginia. Earlier that same day, before Elias was pulled over, a 67-year-old man was stabbed at daybreak in Leesburg. The next day, another man would be attacked and struck on the head with a hammer. There are few details available on these assaults. His last attack would come on Saturday, August 7th. It likely happened as Elias was traveling back to Michigan from Virginia. He found his next victim in Toledo, Ohio, when he stabbed 59-year-old Tony Lino outside of a church. Tony, a custodian, was standing outside the church taking a cigarette break when Elias pulled up to him in his Chevy Blazer and asked for directions. As Tony pointed the way, Elias jumped out of his vehicle, stabbed him twice in the stomach, then got back in his car and drove off. Fortunately, Tony Lino survived the attack. On August 9th, police in Leesburg, Virginia, conclude that the three stabbings in their jurisdiction were the work of one man based on victim's description of the suspect and his car, as well as the MO employed by the attacker. You see, just like he had in Michigan, Elias targeted African-American men who were alone. Elias would ask them an innocent question, such as asking for directions or requesting assistance with his vehicle, before he attacked them. As law enforcement in Virginia is seeing a pattern, back in Michigan, police in Genesee County launch a task force to find the man behind their summer of stabbings. Based on a description from Tony Lino, Toledo police connect his August 7th stabbing to the stabbings happening in Flint. Toledo and Flint are about 110 miles or 175 kilometers apart, and it's a straight shot between the two cities. It's right up I-75. Investigators know that they need help from the public. They have to call in help if they're going to solve this case. They know someone's going to recognize this guy, so they turned to the local media and they gave a description of their suspect along with his vehicle information and some details of the crimes. Tips started coming in right away, but it was tip number 314 that led to a break in the case. 
a woman who was watching the news, she thought the suspect looked like a man her father worked with, a man named Ilyas Abulazam. Police investigated the information she provided. They looked at Abulazam and they saw consistencies between the attacks and his whereabouts and his work schedules. The news reports didn't just keep the public informed and generate tips. It also let Elias know that investigators were on to him, and, not surprisingly, he fled. On Wednesday, August 11th, Abulazam was arrested by U.S. Customs and Border Protection at the Hartsfield-Jackson-Atlanta International Airport. He was 15 minutes away from boarding an airplane bound for Israel. His plane ticket, which cost $3,000, had been purchased by his uncle, the same uncle who helped him find a residence and a job in Flint. After his arrest, Abulazam did not fight extradition to Michigan. The summer of stabbings and violence, his reign of terror, was finally over. Abulazam was initially charged with three open counts of murder and six counts of assault with attempt to commit murder. While awaiting trial, Abulazam was held in solitary confinement, one of only 13 inmates in the jail confined in that way. He was locked in his 8-foot by 13-foot cell 23 hours a day, with one hour outside of the cell when he would speak to his lawyers, see a doctor, or stretch his legs in the hallway near the solitary confinement cells. While in his cell, guards checked him every 15 minutes to make sure that he was safe, not unlike the work he did back in Leesburg, Virginia, at the Mental Health Center. His time in jail was not uneventful. Another inmate tried to harm Abulazam by poisoning his food, and it was also reported that Abulazam assaulted an officer during his time in jail. In September of 2010, prosecutors decide to move forward with charges in the August 2nd death of 49-year-old Arnold Minor. Prosecutors decided not to pursue the other charges. They would revisit them later. And despite Abulazam not having to stand trial for those other crimes, victim testimony from and descriptions of the other murders were ruled admissible by the judge during his trial. And the trial began on Tuesday, May 8, 2012. For the prosecution, key pieces of evidence were Arnold's blood on a pair of pants in Obulazam's luggage, as well as blood taken from his SUV. They also presented video from a nearby party store, which had footage of a vehicle matching Obulazam's car in the area during the time of the murder. Prosecutors called 50 witnesses, including other men who were attacked by Obulazam. And I want to mention again how distinctive-looking Elias Abulazam is. He's six foot five with thick black hair, and he weighed close to 300 pounds. He was hard to miss. And Elias focused his attacks on victims of smaller stature. Almost all of his victims were black males standing less than six feet tall, men who had a slim build or a small frame. For the defense, they pounced on the fact that witnesses had varying descriptions of the man who stabbed them. But ultimately, their testimony was compelling. On May 15th, the prosecution rested. The defense strategy was to paint Elias as someone who was insane while he committed the crimes. They brought up the fact that Elias attempted suicide in 1997 and that he was diagnosed as psychotic by an Israeli psychologist in 2009. 
The defense presented their star witness, a psychiatrist that claimed Elias suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Dr. Norman Miller took the stand to say that he evaluated Elias twice in 2011. Miller testified that he heard voices that urged him to attack the men, and that he was powerless to resist those voices. His psychiatric issues, along with Abulazam's frequent moves, being a poor student in school, and two divorces, helped Dr. Miller come to his diagnosis. Dr. Miller would be the only witness the defense called to the stand. The prosecution called three rebuttal witnesses that testified while Elias may have a personality disorder and he may lack empathy, he was sane at the time of the crimes. They showed how Elias lulled his victims into a false sense of security. He asked them for assistance or for directions. He presented himself as harmless and in need of help before executing a brutal attack. They also pointed out that Abulazam was strategic in taking steps to avoid capture. The prosecution attacked Dr. Miller by asserting that he asked Elias leading questions such as, quote, Is it your thought that the evil force did this? They also revealed that Dr. Miller had been paid $6,000 for his testimony, and they asserted that Dr. Miller's expertise was in alcohol and drug addiction and they based this assertion on the 200 articles he had written for medical journals. It took the jury only two hours and 23 minutes to convict Abulazam of the murder of Arnold Minor. Michigan does not have the death penalty, so Elias Abulazam was sentenced to life in prison. After his conviction, a judge dismissed the 10 other pending charges against Abulazam. They were dismissed without prejudice, meaning they could be reissued if needed, but prosecution wanted to spare the families additional pain and spare the taxpayers additional costs. The man who held a city in terror for months, the killer labeled the Genesee serial slasher, was off the streets. And while crime remained a serious issue in Flint, and it continues to be an issue to this day, people were able to breathe a little easier with him off the street. Since being sentenced to life in prison on June 25, 2012, things have not been quiet for Abulazam. Before his trial in November of 2010, he was arraigned on five counts of assaulting a police officer after attacking a prison guard. After he was sentenced in June of 2014, his conviction was upheld. Two months later, Elias sued the federal government. He wanted to go home to Israel. He felt he had grounds for the transfer since back in 2009, Ilyas stabbed a friend in Israel before he ever came to Flint. What he really wanted was to go to an Israeli prison to serve out his sentence, but the request was denied. Abulazam was not a U.S. citizen. He felt his status as an Israeli should offer him certain advantages. This desire to serve his sentence in the country of his birth reminds me of another prolific Michigan serial killer, John Norman Collins. Collins was born in Ontario, Canada, and after receiving a life sentence for murder here in Michigan, he fought for transfer back to Canada. I would guess, although I'm not certain, that like Collins decades earlier, Abulazam thought that if he returned to his country of birth, he would serve less time behind bars. 
Abu Lazam continued to file appeals, but in November of 2014, the Michigan Supreme Court declined to hear his case. In May of 2017, with an agreement in place that he could not be prosecuted for the crime, Elias admitted to killing a former neighbor, Jamie Lane, when he lived in Virginia in 2009. Up until this point, the murder had been a cold case. Lane was found dead in his townhome on March 26, 2009. While there was no sign of a break-in or theft, there were signs of a struggle. Abu Lazam's confession provided the Lane family with answers, even if he would not be tried for the case. According to a May 2, 2017 story in the Loudoun Times newspaper, attorney for the Commonwealth of Virginia, James Plowman, noted that Abu Lazam's motives were based on paranoia and delusion. Despite having confessed to the attack in Israel and the murder in Virginia, Elias has never explained his stabbing spree in the summer of 2010. Some investigators have drawn conclusions based on the fact that 16 of his victims were black, while one was Hispanic and one was white. Did Elias have a fixation on and hatred for blacks and minorities? Others say that despite his victims' profiles, we cannot assume his motivations. And listeners, I will let you draw your own conclusions. As of this writing, Elias Abulazam is 43 years old and resides at the Brooks Correctional Facility in Muskegon on the western side of the state. This week's episode was written by the lovely and talented Brittany Martinez. Thank you, Brittany. And thanks also go out to the talented Cesare Gray of Gray Multimedia. He does our sound work each week. Already Gone releases episodes on the 1st and 15th of the month. You can support the show by taking time to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcatcher. You can follow the show on Twitter at Already Gone Pod or on Instagram, where I mostly post photos of my pets. And for pets, I have a dog, two cats, two rabbits, a snake, and a gecko. I also like sharing photos of the cocktails we've been enjoying during Shelter in Place. You can find me on Instagram at Nina Instead. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind this week's episode. I appreciate you listening and please be safe. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.